Well, we've been in a series on holiness, and, and today is the last week that will be in this series, though holiness will continue to bear in, in my life and yours. Um, we're going to be reading out of Revelation. So if you're new, congratulations. We're, we're, going, we're going there. Um, it's not going to get too weird, I hope. But, you know, I want to encourage you, as we've been talking about holiness, when we began, we discussed the idea that holiness is, is, this, is this concept of God himself being set apart from his creation. In other words, God creates everything. We see that in Genesis, this panoramic view of, of his creative work. And the distinction is that although everything is good and great, God is good and greater. That he is separate from his creation. That he resides in heaven and he rules over his creation. And so God shows us that he is holy. And that word means set apart. But then we talked about how if God is set apart and he has created creation so that he might have a people who can participate in his, in his life, we see he creates Adam and Eve, and then he, he draws out Abraham and creates a people, the people of Israel. And then in the New Testament, he creates an even greater people, Christians from, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Then we see that God has called not only himself holy, but he's called us to be holy as well, to be set apart both in our lives, in our purpose and commitments, but also in our behavior, in our actions, in our ethic. And today, uh, we're going to talk about the reality that, that to be holy is to, to be hopeful. That a life of holiness is a life of hope. That if we're honest about the desire to be holy in this life, when there's so much in this world, in our flesh, in, in, in everything about this world that would discourage us, we need a, a strong source of hope. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're just, you're just on, on the precipice about to just jump because it is just too hard. That perhaps it is just too hard to do this Christian thing. It's just my, my life, my, my parenting is just too hard. I want to quit. I want to give up. My marriage, it's messed up. It's just too hard. You know, this, this besetting sin in my life, it, it's just taken over and, and it's just too hard and and holiness seems like a bar that one could never reach. And the reality is, apart from Christ, that's true. There's, there's no hope apart from Christ. But with Christ, not only is there the possibility of holiness, but there's the expectation and the hope that we can become what God has always intended us to be. And so today we're going to look out of Revelation chapter 21, really kind of the, the end of the Bible. And... John writes this letter, which is comprised of a number of different visions that he sees. And they're written, this letter wasn't just written to us to make interesting uh, fictional narratives that, that call into question what, what's going to happen. Um, this was written to churches who needed encouragement. Many commentators think that they were under significant persecution and, and they were in danger. The, the Christians were in danger of, of saying, I, I can't do this anymore. Holiness, holiness looks like too much in this culture. It's going to cost me too much. And so John receiving this vision from God is, is not just saying you can do this, but he's saying look to what God has done and will do. And as we set our eyes on what God has done and will do, 
we, we receive the strength to be holy today. Amen? Let's stand together as we read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. We all heard basically the same thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you, to look forward to what you have promised. God, I pray that our eyes would see the promises in Scripture greater than we see our own circumstances. And that we would be drawn up, that our hearts might even be grasping the promises and the hopes that we have drawing us up out of the mire and muck of our current circumstances, drawing us away from the temptations that we experience, and ultimately drawing us into your presence. We pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Sorry about that, guys. So I said earlier, this, this book, if you were to go and read it, it's, it's got a lot of uh, strange things that, that we're not necessarily familiar with. If you've grown up in a certain tradition of the church, you're familiar with it, but maybe not in the ways that, that would be as helpful. Uh, but the book of Revelation was written inten- intending to encourage and do something for the believers at that time. Uh, the, and, and these visions and these, these ideas were intended to, to communicate something kind of visceral. There's something, there's something about seeing a reality over against reading that reality. And so John is trying to, to bring vision to mind so that we can see something about the hope that we have in Christ. It's a word of hope for us to endure, to persevere, and ultimately to pursue holiness. And it's a vision, in this case, of the ultimate future, that, that one day Jesus will come back, that God is going to reestablish, in some way, shape, or fashion, a new creation. That, that the brokenness, the hollowness, the lack of satisfaction, the pain, 
that we experience in this world indicates that there ought to be something better and the promise is that there will be. So I'm gonna highlight three things that we're gonna see in this text. First of all, that God will remake creation for us, his people. I'll say it again. God promises to remake creation for his people. Secondly, that God will dwell with us, his people. That there will no longer be this, this separation that even on our best day we experience where, where we know God is there, but we're believing it by faith because, because we can't see him face to face here and now. That God will dwell with us, his people. And then finally, we'll see that God will satisfy our deepest longings and bless us. God will satisfy our deepest longings and bless us. So look with me at verses one and two. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He promises that, that God is going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. Now, why would we even need that? I mean, the earth is pretty great and, and we've got some problems, yes, but, but wh why does he even suggest that? Well, if we're honest, we see that there's brokenness in the world. There's there's brokenness in our relationships, there's brokenness in, in culture, there's brokenness in our sinfulness, but that, that permeates into creation itself. And in fact, when, when we look at the beginning of the Bible, in, in, John, uh, not John, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that although God had made everything good, when Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't just affect themselves. And just as a corollary, when you sin, it doesn't just affect you. There's no secret sin that just, it, it can be insulated to you. Your sin affects those around you. And as we see, our sin affects even the creation. God, in hearing that, that Adam and Eve had, had disobeyed him, he, he pronounces some judgments. And the judgment that he pronounces, interestingly, on, uh, on Adam is in verse 17. It says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistle it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's kind of grim. He's, work was not something that happened in the fall. God had established Adam as the first gardener, but what had been, what came as a result of the fall was that his work was frustrated. When you go to work and you receive an email and it is frustrating because the person has not read your requirements and they have not listened to the many things that you told them and even though you wrote it in email and talked to them face to face, they are coming back and saying ridiculous things, that's because of Adam. <laughs> so you can just blame Adam. Next time that happens at work, Adam! People, why does he hate Adam so much? Our work was intended to be fruitful and fulfilling, but is instead frustrated. And that work does have to do with our environment, our existence on this earth. And though we're able to do a lot of things and overcome a lot of aspects of, of the fall through technology, the reality is we still experience friction. The fact that we have to fight against 
the, the many obstacles that, that face us in order to, to do things positively is an indication that we fight against the curse. And so God promises that he will bring redemption. In Romans, it talks about this idea of redemption. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's talking about our life and our creative experience of of redemption, that God's going to save us and we're going to experience good things. But it's interesting that he he talks about creation in chapter 8, verse 20. He says, in, in talking about suffering, I'll start in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who who subjected it. In other words... He's saying, I'm, I'm looking forward to the time where this present, this difficulty that we experience, it's nothing compared to the glory of God revealing his awesomeness, his glory to us when he comes back and he calls his people. And what does he say? And when he calls his people, creation is going to be re- relieved because creation was frustrated, not willingly, but because of Adam. I said it before, but creation does not struggle to worship God. Creation does not struggle to bring glory to God. It is only humans who struggle to bring glory to God. And creation was was frustrated in that purpose by our sin. So God promises that he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. And he says something a little strange. He says, there will be no sea. The sea will be no more. And and you might be saying to yourself, but I like the beach. I like like sailing. But, But for these people, it's likely that that's... That's there because the sea represented chaos. It represented disorder. It was the thing out of which the great dragon, if you were to read through uh, other parts of Revelation, the great dragon comes out of, right? It's the origin of, of, of wickedness. It's the place of, of, of scary things. I mean, Job doesn't go walking through the forest. He's thrown into the ocean. And that's a scary place, a place of death. And so we see that in this New heaven, new earth, maybe not literally, but, but figuratively, the idea that, that the sea or the place of death, the place of wickedness is going to be no more. In this new creation, we'll live physical lives, but in a physically redeemed and remade world. Again, we don't know exactly what this is going to look like. I don't know if there's going to be redeemed grass and, and there will be no redeemed weeds and it'll just be awesome. I don't know if, if it's going to be lush and, and green and, and amazing or if it, it'll be a more spiritual thing. But we do know that when Jesus comes back, he comes back physically. He's not, he's not a phantom. He's not just kind of a ghost who just shows up and tells us things. No, he, he comes back and he has scars on his hands. He's got a wound on his side that's healed. There, there are marks of his experience, but he is glorified. And, and we see that in the same way, God is going to remake creation. He goes back in verse 2 and he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for, from God, prepared as a bride adorned, adorned for her husband. Now, as, as Westerners who many of us have little or no interest or experience of Jerusalem, we might say, well, okay. But if you take this in the context of John, who is a Jewish man who who is followed a Jewish leader who has an experience of the Old Testament. Jerusalem represented the place of God. It was the place where the temple was. It was the place where the presence of God was. 
You wanted to, to get to experience the presence of God, you went to Jerusalem. And so when we see that this new Jerusalem comes down, it's not just a, a, a physical place. It's not just a city that, hey, we're going to go to that city. It's going to be a lot of fun. No, no, this is the place where God will dwell. And he goes on and he says, this new Jerusalem is going to be adorned like a bride. And again, if we, if we think super literally, that's kind of strange. You think about a city with veil, a veil, a big veil, sequins, I don't know. But that's not the point. The point is that God has established this city to be the, the counterpart to him, to be the, the loving spouse to him. And if we look at Ephesians chapter 5, you don't have to go there, but you can just write it down. In Ephesians chapter 5, what does is, what is Paul tell us about the marriage relationship, but that it represents Christ and the church? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This image of, of being wed to Christ shows us that this new city, this new place is going to be a place where we get to come into deep relationship with God, where we get to be in his presence. But it's not just a presence for him to judge us or to, to curse us, but it's a presence to bless us. We'll be there celebrating have you ever longed for God to just make things right? Have you ever just wished that he was there? You know, you get to a certain age, at least some of us have this experience where our dad would fix things or our mom would fix things. You know, things were going bad and let me just call mom and she's going to come into the room and fix things. Let me just call my dad and he's going to come into the room and he's going to fix things. You know, as a toddler, it's, it's when we fall. You know, this is, I saw this. We were biking, and, and we saw some other kids biking at this park. And there's a sweet little girl. I mean, she was just tiny. And she was on one of these uh, balance bikes. Um, no, no, no pedals. But she was, she was tiny. And she's biking around. And there, there are obstacles at this park. And she's biking, and she's biking, and then she face plants. And, like, the scary thing where the, kick, the legs kick up and the bike comes, and you're like, oh, no, in real slow motion. Oh. No, and what does dad do? He runs, and he's not like—I mean, he's just a regular dude. But it's funny because he was running, and he there was a there was a platform in front of him, and he jumped up, you know, like and and comes and saves the day, and and picks her up and sets her back on there to get her to try again, so that she's not traumatized for life, and she does awesome because she was an awesome little kid. But dad jumped into that moment, and she. I'm sure that she longed for her dad in that moment. And that's, that's what God intends to fulfill with the new Jerusalem. It's not just, oh, okay, well, I guess as a Western white man, I'm going to experience something about Middle Eastern culture. No, he's saying that, that you're going to be close to your, your God, the one that you've longed for, that you even haven't realized that all of these longings were, were covering up a deeper longing for God. In the new heavens and the new earth, the people of God will be in the place of God's presence. The church, this new Jerusalem, the bride, the church will be perfected. There'll be no more sin, no more brokenness, no more pain as we're going to talk about in a moment. I mean, if you've, if you've spent any length of time at church, you know that people at church are surprisingly not perfect. And uh, if you haven't figured that out and you came to church today expecting us to be perfect, I apologize. We're not. 
We, we all are in process. And, and that can be painful. I mean, it's one thing to be hurt by someone who you know has no sort of moral compass. It's another thing to be hurt by someone who you kind of have an expectation that this is my brother, this is my sister. They should know better. And, and that can be painful. That can be a painful thing to walk out. And one day, that will no longer be an issue. Because the new Jerusalem will be perfect. We will be perfect. We will celebrate and worship God with us. So as I said, we'll re- God will remake creation for his people, but he also will dwell with us. He goes on and he speaks more explicitly. He's, he doesn't just leave it as a, well, maybe we'll be with him in the new Jerusalem. No, it says in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God will be with us. God had always intended and planned to dwell with his people. Again, in Genesis, God has this, this unbroken fellowship. He's hanging out with Adam and Eve. They're in relationship. We don't know how long that relationship uh, continued without, without rupture, but we know that before the fall, they, there was nothing to separate them from their God. They, they were in perfect relationship. What an amazing thing it would have been. I mean, just, just from the sense of, of, you know, I don't even have to look up Wikipedia. I could ask God, what is this plant? Why is this plant? Have you ever seen a plant and you're like, I don't, why? Or bug? Anyways, side note. But God promised to be with his people. And even after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised he would be with his people. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11, God makes this promise. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not hate you or abhor you. And I will walk amongst, among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and you should that you should not be slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. God promised that because he saved them, he would be, he would be their people. He would be their God. They would be his people. In John chapter 1, we see that, that God really promises to be with us. And it says in this great prologue, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God, or sorry, he was in the beginning with God. Talking about Jesus. Jesus was was in the beginning, he was with God in the beginning, he was the word in the beginning, all things were made with and through him, and then it goes and it says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and what dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us, he was present among us. God wanted to be with his people, he had promised to be with his people, so he came down to be with his sinful people. And then in Matthew chapter 28, we see God, or Jesus Christ, about to ascend, and he's making these promises and calling them to, to, to make disciples. And it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded to you. And what does he promise? I am with you always to the end of the age. God has always wanted to be with his people. And now we see finally that God dwells with his people with no separation, no intermediate, no interruption. God with us. And you know what happens when God is with us in that capacity? Our pain goes away. Our suffering goes away. He goes on and he says in verse 4, 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God will wipe away the tears of suffering from our eyes. I think he's talking specifically about the, the tears of suffering because he's speaking to people who are probably experiencing persecution on behalf of Christ. These are not tears of of remorse or repentance, or not rather tears of, of regret, because those to whom he's speaking are following him. These are tears of those who are saying, How long, O Lord? And if you're if you're crying those tears, if you're experiencing that kind of pain, if you're following God faithfully, but you're you're just experiencing obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. You know, something in your body just doesn't want to line up. Something in your relationships just doesn't want to become reconciled. There's something that just continues to cause pain in your life. And you're saying, how long, oh Lord, there is a moment when God is going to wipe away your tears and you're going to have no longer any cause to cry. Some of you, you're, you're, you're closely connected with death because someone recently has passed away or someone is on the precipice of passing away. And you're saying, God, I don't want to experience the mourning I don't want to experience the pain. And there's going to be a day when God promises, where there is a day that God promises where death will be no more, pain will be no more, because God has dealt the final blow on former things. God is going to make all things new. If we're honest, though, we're, we're longing for more in this life. I mean, this is all fun and nice, but my guess is for you, it feels pretty far away. For me, as I was reading through this and preparing, I, I wished there was more color because there's so much color in my own life. And by that, I mean, I wish that this was more vividly visible in my life because the pain and circumstances, difficulty, all of those things are in HD or 4K, whatever the latest thing, 8K, I don't know. I see it clearly. You're, you see your pain clearly. And there's a deep longing in all of us to be freed from that pain. There's a deep longing in all of us to be completely known. There's a deep longing in all of us to be accepted and received and loved and cherished and to experience the, the satisfaction of our purpose being fulfilled. And if you don't, if you don't feel that, I, I would venture to guess it's not because that hunger is not there. I think it's because we are constantly snacking. And I, I'm, I'm not talking about literally, though perhaps literally. But we're constantly looking for ways to, to turn the volume down on that hunger. We're, we're on social media. We're on the news. We're on entertainment and television. We're, we're constantly just on a low-level drip of something that will numb us. For some of us, it's other things. A relationship that, you know, this relationship's going well, everything else is terrible, but this relationship's going well. Or it's, it's my career. You know, my career's going well. I don't want to look at my personal life. I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want to be alone with my thoughts. But, man, I'm just going to pour myself into my work. That thing on the Internet. I'm, I, you know, I'm going to run to that thing because it, it makes me feel better. 
That, that relationship that I know I shouldn't be pursuing. I'm going to pursue that relationship because everything else that God's called me to is it's not bringing satisfaction. We hunger. We want to be satisfied. Uh, God promises that he's making all things new. And he's going he's gonna to satisfy our hunger. Um, I think I've skipped ahead. That's okay. Who's going to do this? It says in verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus promises I will do this. The reason God can promise that he's going to meet our deepest longing is because it's Jesus who's going to do it. Who is Jesus but the one who began things? He was with God in the beginning. He is God. He was there at creation. But he's also at the end. Not only is he the end like, okay, I'm at the end of the story. But no, he is the goal. He is the purpose. He is the target for the story's end. I hate to break it to you, but you and I, we are not the point. Happily ever after doesn't mean that, yay, and Eddie lived happily ever after. And that's, that's the last sentence. I am a footnote, less than a footnote, maybe a footnote of a footnote. Probably I'm not going to be referenced. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. God will bring completion to his plan, and that means that he's going to be the one to bring satisfaction to us. He's going to satisfy our longings. In the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Think about that for a second. If there's something that you desire, that, that there's, there's, a, there's a hole that's missing and it's not, it's not something that's, that's, that's wrong with you, it's not like you were born and you just have this, this, you know, one of your chromosomes did something strange and you have this longing. No, this is the longing that exists for all of us. If you have that longing, then the, that can't be satisfied by this or this or this or this or this. And if you're not sure, read Ecclesiastes. You, that deep longing cannot be satisfied by these other things. And, and if that exists, he says, then perhaps this world with these offers and opportunities is not the world that you were made for. Our longings will be fulfilled by God. In, in Psalm 42, the psalmist speaks to these longings. And, and I, I'm going to read it not because it, it says anything else, but that it gives us words to describe that longing. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My tears have become food day and night while they say to me, all the day long, where's your God? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever come to the end of your day and just thought, where are you, God? Where are you, God? I'm not trying to create some sort of like Pollyanna, we all long for God. No, there, there's stuff that's messed up in your life. Can we be honest? There's stuff that's messed up in your life and and. In those moments, it's not just, man, I hate that this situation is the way it is. The deeper piece of it is, man, I wish that God would make it right. 
man, I wish that, that God would fix this. And, and even deeper, man, I wish that God would be here in a way that would prevent this from even happening. There's a longing that we have. He promises to fulfill those longings. He goes on and he says, not only will he fulfill them, but he will bless those who overcome. It says in verse 7, Though the one who overcomes will have this heritage. And if you were to go through and read, there, there are various blessings that, that John reads about for those who are overcome. That, that phrase, for the conqueror, if you were to go through, I, I could give you the verses. I'm not going to go through them here, but he promises a number of things to them. But ultimately, he promises God to them. How do we overcome? What does it mean to be an overcomer? I want to read you a prayer out of this. Uh, it's called the Valley of Vision. Um, since I'm on a, on a encouraging you to read books kick, read this book. Uh, I, this is my copy. You can't have it. Um, if you begged me, I might give it to you. But uh, anyways, it's a good book. It's, it's a, a compilation of prayers by, by various, very, various Puritan writers. And it says this, O divine redeemer, great was your goodness in undertaking my redemption, in consenting to be made sin for me, in conquering my foes. Great was your strength in enduring the extremities of divine wrath, in taking away the load of my iniquities. Great was your love in manifesting yourself alive, in showing your sacred wounds, that every fear might vanish, that every doubt might be removed. Great was your mercy in ascending to heaven, in being crowned and enthroned, there to intercede for me, there to aid me in temptation, there to open the eternal book, there to receive me finally to yourself. Great was your wisdom in devising this means of salvation, of salvation. Bathe my soul in rich, rich consolations of your resurrection life. Great was your grace in commanding me to come hand in hand with you to the Father, to be knit to him eternally, to discover in him my rest, to find in him my peace, to behold his glory, to honor him who alone is worthy. In giving me the spirit as a teacher, guide, and power that I might live repenting of sin, conquering Satan, and find victory in life. Where you have been absent, all sorrows are here. But when you are present, all blessings are mine. The, the writer of this prayer, his victory is not that he is a, a Christian Marine. His victory is not that he's just the toughest Christian out there. His victory is that Christ has overcome. His victory is his faith and obedience to the God who has saved him. We're promised that if we persevere in our faith and obey, we will receive an inheritance as what? Children of God. I will be his God and he will be my son. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about our life here on earth. And he talks about God and how, how great and majestic and powerful he is. And he says this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you ever feel like your outer self is wasting away? You just wake up and you're like, that shouldn't hurt. I don't know, I was sleeping wrong? Or, or we look at our, our circumstances and 
our finances and our relationships. And man, there's aspects of my outer self that are wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, what Paul is saying is, is all of this, it's transient. And one day we're going to experience the reality in its fullness of the weight of God's glory. All of this is passing away. Our lives, it, it, they're like the, the National Geographic video of, of the plant coming out. It's, in, it's time-lapse photography, and you see it happening. And it's like, oh, it's really pretty. There's a flower. And then, oh, no, it's dying. It's decaying. It's what? Ah, it's gone. For Paul, the light and momentary affliction involved beatings, being stoned nearly to death, being whipped, being shipwrecked, being hated, persecuted, betrayed. So, so don't take his words as, as Paul, you don't understand my situation. It's not light or momentary. He does. He does. But he's saying in comparison to the, to the reality that you and I, we can't even, if we could just taste it, it would put this stuff in perspective. And that's why John's using all this visionary language. He's trying to get us to taste the fact that we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and God's going to wipe away the tears and we're going to be with him. It's in light of this reality that, that we're going to be with him that we can say today, I'm going to be holy. I'm going to pursue holiness. God has called me holy. He has justified me by faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to live in a way that honors him. In order to live a life of hope, we need a life of holiness. And in order to live a life of holiness, we need to set our spiritual eyes on the one in whom we hope. As we, as we close, I want you to listen to the words of this hymn, Be Thou My Vision. You, you might be familiar with it. It's, a, it's an old Irish hymn. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Let nothing else be that except for you. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, your presence, my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father and I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. Riches I, I heed not nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High king of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befalls, still be my vision, O ruler of all. A life of holiness is a life whose vision is set on Jesus Christ. A life whose vision is set on the promises that he's made. There's going to be an end, family there's going to be a moment where all of the, the weight is going to be lifted. And then we'll see God for who he is and we'll celebrate 
and then we'll keep celebrating. Let's live in light of that reality. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have promised to bring everything together. God, that you've promised to, to bring holiness to bear, to bring wholeness to bear. That you've promised to, to fix every broken thing, to heal every wound, to comfort every pain. And more than that, Lord, you've invited us to a, an eternal celebration. And I pray that for, for these people here that we would, God, would you help us to experience taste your goodness. Lord, there's so many in this room I know that, that are, are feeling the grind, feeling the friction of living in a broken world surrounded by enemies outside and enemies within and just worn out. Would you renew their strength? God, would you draw close? As we say, we... We thirst for the living God. Would you give us a taste of the water that you promised to fulfill us with when this day comes? Bless your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, family.